We thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and ask you to guide and lead us as we examine what you would like, like us to know from this section. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 16. We're going to be starting at verse 14. Jeremiah has been telling everybody they're going to go into captivity. They're not going to be lamented. They're going to die at battle. They're going to die of famine. They're going to go into captivity. And all of that stuff that we talked about last week. So, verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days come, says the Lord, that, that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord lives that brought the children of Israel from the land of the north and from the lands where, where the, he had driven them. And I will bring them up again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. And I want to stop here because this is kind of an interesting statement. All through the Old Testament, everything that is mentioned about them is the God that delivered from Egypt. All right? It, everywhere. And Jeremiah is telling them, uh, there's going to come a day when nobody's going to say, the Lord lives who took you out of the land of Egypt. Now, when he's saying this, this is, this is going to hit them like, what are you talking about? That's the greatest thing that ever happened to us. We were delivered from captivity. The ten plagues destroyed, you know, destroyed the Egyptian culture. God delivered us through the Red Sea. He, you know, we had the, the, the law was given, the 40 years of wilderness walking, and, and we were delivered into the promised land. And if you read the Old Testament enough, you see that's all they ever talk about. And even in Jesus' day, that's a lot of what they talked about, but not near as much as the Old Testament. So this is going to be, I mean, we don't really recognize the shock of this statement. That would be like telling us in America, the day's coming when you'll no longer talk about the Revolutionary War. You're going to talk about whatever, whatever it might be. And we'd go, what are you talking about? That was the, you know, that started the country. You know, how could, how could we not be talking about that? That's the kind of statement that this is, to give us some kind of context upon how shocking a statement this is to the people. And they're hearing Jeremiah say this, and they're probably thinking, what is wrong with you? you know, how can you even think that this is something that God would say? The greatest event that ever happened, the, the great prophet Moses who delivered us from that, you know, and you're going to tell us that we're not going to be talking about that day? Yeah, and you know, I'm just laying the stage because as Gentiles, we read this and going, "All right, what's the big deal?" Yeah. You know, who who cares? They're not going to say that we delivered that. You know, talk about the God who delivered us out of out of Egypt. He goes, "But the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, and from the lands where they where He had driven them, and I will bring them back against again to the land that I gave their fathers." So here he is making the prophecy, you're going into captivity, and the big news after this will be that God restored us to our kingdom again. And this was a really big deal because when he took them out of Egypt, they were all in one place. They were in Egypt. When they go to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar scatters them across the 120 provinces of Babylon. So he scatters them everywhere so when God brings them back it's going to be a big deal number one to destroy a nation and then bring them back and I think in our day we could probably say the same thing even though it's not in this prophecy 
God brought his people back from an even bigger scattering than from, from Babylon. They were scattered across the world and God brought them back. And even to this day, many of the Jewish people that I have met at least want to go have, visit Jerusalem and have Passover or something there. But many of them are saying, I just want to go, I just want to move to, to Israel. And I think as we see more and more anti-Semitism, there's going to be more and more people saying, well, it may not, it may not be all that safe there, but it's still better than what I'm facing wherever I'm at. And so we're going to see God, and God said, I will gather all my people together back into Israel. So he's going to call his people, and it's almost like a homing. <laughs> you know, they've got this great desire to at least visit Israel. And many of the Jews I talked to said, I'd love to go, I'd love to move there. And that's going to increase as we see more and more anti-Semitism. And I think there will come a time when the, the statement won't even be for Babylon. It'll be, look what God has done to establish us. And I think it's an amazing thing because Israel has been destroyed and, and made not a nation twice, and they've been restored to a nation twice. Well, three times if you count, if you count uh, Ezekiel, uh, Exodus, where they first started. And he's restored them on three different occasions. And in Egypt, I don't necessarily count that because they were in one location practicing their, their activities and everything. But when they came back from Babylon, they had problems because... They had been many times secularized. They, they had a, a core beliefs, but they had become believers in other gods, other activities. They weren't really following God very strong. So that would be part of the reason why they wouldn't talk of the Exodus, like where you said in, in verse 14. It could very well be. Well, I think it's a two-way street. Number one, they have forgotten. All they've been doing is practicing Passover, but Passover had become kind of like we practice Christmas and Easter. They're supposed to be celebrations about Jesus, but the average person in our country and around the world doesn't recognize that we're worshiping the birth of Jesus for Christmas and the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. Uh, it's just a holiday. Yeah, Christmas is a big holiday because they sell lots of stuff. Easter is kind of just fallen by the wayside. Even in churches, a lot of churches don't emphasize the resurrection of Jesus and the power that that represents. And this is the way the Jews are with Passover. It's just an event. You know, they kind of recognize, oh yeah, that's when God delivered us out of, out of slavery, but they don't really recognize it as the day God brought them in, you know, the time God brought them into the promised land. Because there's that long process in between it that they forget about. So you got that process, and it was a great miracle because he did gather them from the known world at that time, from India all the way to, to Egypt, all the way out to the Turkey. So, I mean, he brought them from all around the world back together, uh, at least the known world at that time. So it was a big deal. And these people, it's going to be what's fresh on their mind. God brought us together from around the world. And here we are, we're a nation again. We're back where we belong. And they're going to say, this is more important to us than the Egyptian deliverance. So this is what he's saying. You know, and, and again, I'm kind of harboring on, harping on this, but it, I do want us to understand as Gentiles that this was, you know, when he was saying this, especially to them, it's like, what are you talking about? You know, we're never going to forget 
you know, Egypt, nothing is going to be greater than the deliverance out of Egypt and being given our promised land and David coming along and starting the kingdom and go, you're, you're going to tell us that we're going to talk about the coming from the gathering from the north. And, you know, they just, well, number one, they also weren't recognizing that they were going to be taken captive in the first place. So this is all what's going on here. And I'm just trying to really make sure that this, when we look at this statement, we just don't kind of read over it and say, huh, okay, nice statement, Jeremiah. I don't really know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, but that is what he's talking about here. He's making this, this is a big deal for them to change what they say is our history. What is our key focus? And again, I, as I mentioned, it would be like us as Americans saying, well, we're not going to care about the Revolutionary War anymore. We're going to care about some second revolutionary war so you know you know um and that would be we'd look at it you know, like what what are you talking about who who wants a second revolutionary war in the first place and they're saying the same thing you know who wants to have a regathering you know because they've been ignoring the prophecies that they're going into captivity and they're not buying into it the kings are are punishing him when he speaks this way the people's going uh, we're all profitable everything's good what are you talking about you know nothing's wrong and he's, going to, and he's telling them, there's going to come a time when you're not even going to think about Egypt. You're going to think about the return of the people. Later in his book, he's going to tell them that they're going to go into captivity for 70 years. Now, I guess it's good. If you're going to go into captivity, it's probably good to know exactly how long you're going to be going into captivity for. Uh, you know, unless you're, unless you're old to begin with. <laughs> I'm going to die in captivity because I'm already 100 years old. There's no way I'm ever coming back. You know, but you're 10 years old, well, maybe I'll have a chance to come home and come back. And we find out in, in Ezra and Nehemiah, when they built the second temple uh, that Cyrus told them to build after 70 years, there were people who had been alive and saw the first one, and it says they cried at the inferiority of the second temple because it was nothing like the temple that, that Solomon built. Uh, and I'm glad they were glad to have a temple, but they looked at it and said, "We remember, we remember when there was a real temple out there, a real jewel to to pay attention to." And so they were very upset about <laughs> the the new temple being built, the way it was built. Uh, not that it was built, but that it did not look like what they wanted to remember. And so. This is going to be a very big deal for them as they go forward and say, and they see the fulfillment of this. And right now he's just warning them and nobody believes him. Uh, it's very hard when you're a voice calling out in the, calling out, you know, whoa, 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 and don't do this. And, you're, and people are looking at you and saying, what is wrong with you? Go, go, go away. And we're seeing this even in our country when people are saying, you know, hey, we've got problems ahead. We are ignoring our constitution. We are ignoring our freedoms. And people are going, oh, well, we know, we're, we know what's best for you. And it's like, you know, Jeremiah could have had the people saying the same thing. We know what's best. You know, what's wrong with Jeremiah? We don't, we don't care about the word of God. We don't, but everything is going good. So Jeremiah, why don't you just shut up? Because you're, you're all doom and gloom and, and, and talking about how bad things are going to be. And we hear people all the time, even in America, saying we're headed in the wrong direction. We're headed in a country to fall apart. And everybody's going, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, no. And I'm not saying we're prophets. We're just looking at history. 
Yeah, we're just looking at what has happened in the past and what God says happens to nations that, that disobey and know that what's going to happen is this country's going to fall apart without a re revival. Jeremiah had said the same thing to him. And he goes, by the way, there's going to come a time when you're going to care more about the return from captivity than you did about, about uh, the release from, from Egypt. So verse 16. Behold, I will send for many fishers, says the Lord, and they will fish them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are upon their ways. They are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. And first I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double. Because they have defiled my land, they have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable things. All right, so here is God coming in with some very strong, harsh words. He goes, I am going to send many fishers, says the Lord, and they will fish among them. So he's going to go, you are going to be punished. Now, fishing, and remember in our day, fishing is go out with a pole and a hook and and cast out your hook and, and, and reel it in. In their day, it was nets. So nets took in much larger amounts of fish and didn't leave much behind. All right, so he's saying, I'm going to send fishers, and they are going to fish out the population. And before that, at the beginning of this chapter, he was saying, your young men are going to die, your, old, your young women are going to die, your old men are going to die, you, you know, over and over, and he's going, everybody's going to die either by battle, by famine, or they're, and if they manage to live, they're going into captivity. So he says, I'm going to send many fishers, and they will fish you. And he goes, and then I will send hunters to hunt you. So the fishing is going to grab the majority of the people, and then the hunters are going to go out and get anybody who's managed to get away, he says, and they will go to every mountaintop and every hill and they will go to the holes in the rocks and they will hunt. So he's going, okay, you got away from the fishing nets? You, you ran up into the hills and the mountains and the holes and he goes, I'm going to send hunters to come and get you. Now this is pretty thorough. I'm going to fish for you with nets. If you happen to get away from the nets, I'm going to send hunters after you. When God gets done with something, he makes things miserable. And this takes us to what will it look like in the tribulation period when Satan is given, not free hand, because otherwise he'd destroy everybody, but a very free hand, and God steps in and says, I am going to send destruction. And we've mentioned this many times. I've gone through, and I've heard others say it as well, but I've gone through and added the quarters and the thirds and, the, and everything up. 66% of the world's population will die during the tribulation period. The nets will go through and a third of people will die. The hunters will come along and kill the next, next quarter. I mean, over and over again, people are going to die. When God brings judgment, there's great suffering. And this is Jeremiah saying, this is God coming. He's sending, now he doesn't give a percentage, but he says he's going to send a net, he's going to send hunters, and people are going to die. The, mo the bulk of the population of Judah dies because of the judgment and captivity of Babylon. That's a sad statement, and I don't know what the number was or anything, because I don't remember ever reading it, 
but the bulk of them are going to die because of the iniquity of the nation. Now, this is kind of a sad thing because when this great devastation comes, the righteous and the unrighteous get consumed. Now, God will take steps to protect many of the righteous, but the unrighteous will also suffer. At the very least, they suffer in captivity, by, in captivity to go to Babylon, and I'm sure many of them died in the, the battles and, the, and everything that's going on. And you know, a lot of people will say, well, God will always rescue all the righteous out. Well, he didn't in, uh, he didn't in various times. You know, yes, he did rescue. He rescued Noah and his family. Eight people out of the entire world. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah took four people out of the entire city. That's not very many. Uh, <clears throat> when Abraham rescues Lot, lots of innocent people died well, maybe innocent, I don't know. <laughs> they were in Sodom and Gomorrah, so it was not necessarily that many innocent people. But we see over and over when judgment falls, righteous people often suffer. When Hitler was in power, the Jews died. Many Christians died that were defending the Jews. Uh, there were many, many people that died because they took a stand against him and said, we're going to stand for God. And many righteous died during that period of time. So the righteous aren't guaranteed that your life is going to be all hunky-dory and, and roses and, and gardens and, you know, and nice gentle rain. Storms fall into the life of the unrighteous as well. Now God always has a plan, always has a goal. It's going to work something good. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it goes over the millions of Christians who had died during that period of time. If you read some of the newer martyr books on martyrs, we still see millions of Christians dying around the world every year. And it's an amazing thing, we don't hear about them. Unless you're paying attention to the Christian sources like uh, Voice of the Martyrs and these guys, you never hear about all these Christians that are dying in today's world. It never makes the newspaper, or rarely makes the news or newspaper. I think the only one in recent years that I saw were the Coptic Christians in Egypt that got killed. And it only made the news because the Muslims who killed it, you know, made it go viral and, and they had to deal with it. Most of these things aren't, aren't made like that. Uh, there are places in the world that if you that have a Christian village where the entire villages will get wiped out with only one or two people left. You know, what is God trying to do? He's trying to show that there's something worth dying for and people get saved by this. He's got a reason for it. And Jeremiah is telling him, there's coming a time when all these things are going to happen. And in verse 18, it says, uh, excuse me, verse 17, for my eyes are upon their ways and they are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from my eyes. So many people that don't know God don't understand that God sees everything. You know, number one, they don't care about God. And even if they do care about God, I was talking to somebody and they go, well, God has a sense of humor. He's a good God. That's the attitude of most people. Now, if I just do enough good things, God will be okay with me because he's loving and he's good and he's kind. And he really doesn't see the bad things as long as there's more good than good than bad and people don't understand God sees all now and part of it is because of his patience and long suffering they kind of go well God must be blind because I didn't 
I didn't get zapped the first time I, I did something wrong, so God must be okay with it. You know, he, he didn't punish me and, and knock me down on the very first time I did this, so there's no problem with it. God doesn't care. And God is saying, okay, there's just a little more rope. There's a little more rope. There's an end to this rope eventually, and you're going to run out. When the, when the platform falls down, you're going to run out of rope. And people just think, because I get away with it. And Christians do the same thing at times. Now, we'll say I'm living in grace and by God's mercy. But oftentimes, we start forgetting that God is still a righteous judge. He is extreme righteous. He is holy. He is perfect. His expectation for us, even though he knows we can't do it, is that we will be perfect and righteous. And he gives us the power to do it because he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ and he fills us with the Holy Spirit. And if we just would surrender to the Holy Spirit completely, we could be perfect. The only problem is nobody I ever know, and myself included, have ever totally surrendered to the Holy Spirit. I believe it was Moody who said, the world has never seen what a man totally surrendered to God would accomplish. And it's a true statement. And he accomplished a lot. But Moses accomplished a lot. Elijah and Elisha accomplished a lot. But even in their cases, they weren't totally surrendered to God. And so here we're saying God sees everything. There is nothing hidden from his face. And I think we really have to understand the omnipresence of God. Because this is something that is very important because even we as Christians sometimes will think, you know, and we probably would never say it because we know better. But we're going, well, I'm going to go over here and God's not going to see what I'm doing. I, you know, he, he's not really noticing what I'm doing. Because if we really believe that he saw everything we were doing, we wouldn't do half of what we do. God hears everything we do. And if we truly understood that he sees and hears everything because he is right there, would that change the way we live? Probably, if we fully, truly believed it. It's one of those things like the attack and said, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Do I really believe that God is omnipresent? Do I really believe that he sees everything that I am doing? Here's everything that I say. But then there's times when I don't think about God, so we don't until it's too late. That's the problem. And it's not necessarily that we just forget his omnipresence, but, but we push it back. He is not on the forefront of our mind, at which time we're basically saying, God, you're not everywhere present. I can do what I want because you know, you're not there. And this is really the hard part about living the Christian life is staying focused on him all the time and being present. And you're right, we get wrapped up in life. Yeah. I get, you know, this is going on, this is going on, this is going on. And he kind of just gets incrementally push back until all of a sudden going, God, God where, 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 where are you? I'm right back here in the back room where you pushed me. And because he's a gentleman, he allows us the capability of, of pushing him back into the back room and says, okay, if this is where you really want me, I'm not helping you for a while. You know, he's a gentleman to let us push him off, off the throne and, and into the back room, but he's going to say, okay, don't come to me when you need my help either. And say, okay, now you... When you're ready to fully repent, I'll step in. And then we'll be doing 
God, where have you been? Why did all this stuff happening to me? And why aren't you answering my prayers? And God says, well, I'm right back here. I'm in the back bedroom where you pushed me. You know, and I'm, you know, why do you want me now? This is what he's saying. You're not seeing. Nothing is hidden from God. And this is an important statement for us to recognize. Nothing is hidden from him. No matter how far I push him back, no matter, you know, because technically we're not pushing him back. You know, he's just allowing us to, you know, ignore him, do our own thing. And he says it in verse 18 says, and first I will recompense their iniquity. They will get paid for their iniquity. Recompense, payment, getting what you earned. So he says, you're going to get what you have asked for by your disobedience and your iniquity. And then the really scary part, and their sin double. This goes back to what we've talked about so many times, the law of sowing and reaping. When we sow, we reap greater than we sow. And it's a principle we know, understand real well. If you've ever planted a garden or if you even know what a farm is, a, a farmer plants a seed in the ground and you plant a seed in your garden, whatever it might be. Let's say you plant a corn of seed, one little kernel of seed. And when it comes up, you do not expect on that stock to have one kernel of corn. Matter of fact, you don't even want just one ear of corn on, your, on it. You want it to blossom out and have you know, a half dozen, dozen ears of corn on that stock. Sin is the same problem. We sow sin, and the consequences if we reap the consequences of them of much sin in return. Much. And we have to understand this, and here he's saying at least double. Double what you sow. Now this also works on the good side, and this is why it can be a good thing. If I'm sowing good seed... I can get double on that as well. So our goal as Christians should be to sow as much good seed as we possibly can and as little to no bad seed as we possibly can. Now we have a sin nature and we don't focus on God all you know, 100% of the time. So that's going to be a trouble. And it's told to us that Paul said in, in Romans, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Oh, woe is me. And we all go through that. Um, you know, we have the the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and that doesn't even count Satan trying to intimidate us by using our three, our three weak areas anyway. Now, the sad thing for us as humans, we will sin all by ourselves. If we do not let God, for I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth through me, and the life that I now live, I live through the faith of Christ Jesus. I have to let him crucify me and keep me crucified and quit digging myself out of the, off the cross and letting myself try to live. And Satan is going to sit there and say, well, you're not letting your sin be crucified? Here, let me, let me give you some things in front of your eyes. Let me give you some things that you know, are desirable to you. you know, let me give you the lust of your, of your flesh you know, and the pride of life. And he puts them in front of us. But even if he didn't, we would still have problems. But here he's saying we will receive double. Israel was going to receive double what they were sowing. This is a very scary thought on one side, that when we sin, we get a greater return on our sin than we want. 
And this is a statement that sin will carry you further you, than you want and require more from you than you want. And this is always what happens. So I've heard people go, well, I can go out and get drunk tonight. You know, and God will forgive me. Well, that's probably true. He might forgive you. But when you're getting drunk, what might also happen? You know, and you don't know. You know, well, I'm going to go and I'm just going to, you know, smoke some weed. I want to mellow out. Okay. You know, I have problems with any of these things. Even if I'm only socially drinking to mellow out, you know, to forget my problems. Well, am I supposed to be trusting in God to get, take care of my problems? Or am I trying to use these substances to forget my problems? Now, the problem, the problem with the substance is the problem is still there when you're done with it. And you have less money when you're done with it. And you probably have done something stupid while you were all mellowed out. So, you know, the ultimate, you got paid so much more. In this case, you get paid triple on, you know, triple on it. The problem's still there. The, you know, you've got extra problems and you don't have money. You know, so you've got all kinds of problems trying to do things by not being dependent on God. And that's just a quick example. And that doesn't even matter if you went out and, you know, and did something really dumb by you know, driving stoned or something and ended up in an accident or killing somebody uh, or irritating the wrong person you know, while, you're, while, you're, while you're out. Getting shot. <laughs> Getting shot, beat. You know, Proverbs tells us you know, that you spend time you know, with alcohol and it's like being on, a, on the mast of a ship as you go to and fro. He goes, and you wake up with bumps and bruises that you can't tell them where you got them from because you fell down, you fought, you whatever, you know. And I know my dad happened that many times. He'd come back and he'd have bruises and he'd go, I don't even know how I got them. Now, knowing my dad, when he was, before he got saved, he was probably in a fight, you know, because that's, he was, he was a mean man, fairly mean man to begin with. So I'm sure when he was drunk, he was not mellowed out. So, uh, but this is what he says is that, all of these things, he's going to reward them double. And he says, because. Now, we want to look at why, God, are you rewarding this double? He says, you have defiled my land. You have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable things, their idols. He has filled the land with idols. And God says, because you have defiled the land and all the, all the stuff in there. When God sent the children of Israel into the land of Canaan, they were told to kill all the people, all the animals, and they were not even to eat the fruit for a period of year time because the land itself was considered corrupt and defiled. God says, your sin is so bad that I want nothing to do with it. I want you to have nothing to do with the stuff that was there to begin with. That's bad. You know, and I almost think, you know, when I look around our world and our country, how defiled is our land? We have all kinds of idol worship going on. We may not have the idols up there, but, you know, we have idols all over the place. When you look at abortion, what is abortion? It is the worship of Moloch. Get rid of your baby because I want, I want power and prestige and good things happening. You talk to people who committed, have commit, had abortions and you'll hear them all the time. Well, it was the right decision for me because it would have ruined my life. Okay? Hi, Moloch. Here's my baby. 
I don't want any, any, any problems, but here you go. All the sexual perversions we have. Hello, Astaroth. We want to worship in, in, with sexual deviation, so we're going to worship you. Now, we don't have those gods standing up there, but we're still worshiping the same gods. We're having people in America entertaining themselves to death, worshiping entertainment, where they go in and they vegetate in front of a television or for six, seven hours at a time. Or, worse yet, when they're off, the entire day. What is their worship? They're worshiping entertainment for entertainment's sake. Now, entertainment could be watching movies, reading books, whatever, you know, unless you're really reading for the right reason to be taught and learn. But somebody reading romance books and detective books and science fiction books, and that's all they ever read? Not good. They're reading just to be entertained. And there's nothing wrong with being entertained. Don't get me wrong. You can, you know, some of your time can be spent being entertained. God says everything in moderation. There's a time for everything. There is a time to be entertained. There is a time to be amused. But if we let it take over our world, it's, we're worshiping a God. And this is the thing that we look at. We have all kinds of gods we're worshiping without having a great big idol stick, sticking out there. But we're still worshiping the same gods. And this is something that is very serious for us to understand. We're still worshiping the same gods that they worshiped in the Old Testament. The same gods that were being worshipped in Nimrod's day when he introduced them all. We're still worshipping the same gods. We just don't have the big statue of them. And even that is changing. We're starting to see more and more people actually worshipping statues. You know, and that's a scary thing. Verse 19. O Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come unto you from the ends of the earth and shall say... Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things wherein there is no profit. Shall a man make gods unto himself, and they are no gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know, I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. This statement again, let's put it into a, a statement going to the, gen, uh, going to the Jews. God says, I'm going to speak to the Gentiles. And they're going to go, what? We're your chosen people. You don't, you don't speak to Gentiles. You don't have anything to do with Gentiles. They're, they're, they're on earth to go to hell. That was their attitude. You know, and he's saying that, and I love this, O oh Lord, you know, Yahweh, you are my strength, my fortress, and my refuge. Now this is quite strong. God, you give me the strength. We need to really think about this statement in our own lives. How do we have the strength to get through each day? God is our strength. If that's not enough, he's our fortress and our refuge. And a refuge is even stronger than the fortress because the refuges would be inside the, inside the fortress. In case they breached the walls of the fortress, you'd have a refuge, your, your panic room, if you want to take it that, you know. Uh, they got in my gate, they got inside my fence, they got inside my house, I'm going to go hide in the panic room where they can't get me. This is what he's saying, God, and this is quite a statement that he's making. Jeremiah is making this, God, you are my strength, my fortress, my refuge. You know, pretty, pretty strong. He's saying, God, all my trust is in you. All my trust is in you. I have nothing without you. Most of our problems come because we think we can stand outside in the battlefield and not get hit. 
And God is saying, at least put your armor on. If you're going to go stand in the battlefield, at least have your armor on, Ephesians 6. Uh, and I really don't even recommend that you stand in the, in, the, in the battlefield, get into the fortress where you're not going to get hit anyway. And if you're really having trouble and it's a bad battle, go get into the refuge and I will protect you. This is quite a statement that Jeremiah is starting. And it says, the gen- uh, 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 you are in the day of affliction. When everything bad is happening, God, you are my strength, my fortress, my refuge. When we feel that we're having a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, a bad year, everything's going wrong, we need to hide in God. And really remember, he still has a plan. He still has, has a goal. And he hasn't lost control. He has everything under control, even when it seems like it's not under control to us. And he says, in our day of affliction, he is our strength, our fortress. And then he says something, the Gentiles shall come unto you from the ends of the earth and say, surely our fathers have been inherited lies, vanity, and things wherein there is no profit. The Gentiles are going to come and say, we didn't have anything. We had gods, we had vanity, we had lies. This happened when Jesus came and and Christianity swept swept the world. And it's very interesting because that is exactly what they were telling them. The, the, all through the New Testament. God has a plan for you. You have believed in lies. You need to follow God. And here's what was happening. So is Jeremiah saying that Gentiles shall come unto God? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so is, it, he's, is that like a future prophecy concerning Jesus? Or is he just saying because you uh, Jews have turned your back on God? Yes. Because Cyrus is going to step up and send them back to build the temple. Nebuchadnezzar is going to turn to God. We have a, we have a huge turn here on the interaction between God and the Gentiles. Now, he's always been interacted with the Gentiles because he created, created the world and he's spoken to the world. And there's been many monotheistic uh, nations and everything across the world that followed the God of the universe. Uh, primarily from the tribe of, of Shem. All right. So, but now he's saying, the Gentiles are going to turn to me. You have rejected me. You've gone into captivity. Because even when they came back from their first captivity, they did not completely turn back to God. Uh, and they hadn't been before either. So they turned about the same as they were before when they were, you know. And even today, when they've returned back to their land, they have not turned back to God and this is, since Jesus, it is the time of the Gentiles. The, the gap between the return of Jesus and the, the 70th week of, of tribulation for, of, of Daniel is the time of the Gentiles, where God is dealing with Gentiles primarily. And this is why the church has grown up and the church has changed the world. Uh, you know, when, when the church changed Rome, it changed everything about Rome. Everything about the known world was changed, where people started to learn to care for one another. Hospitals are built, orphanages are built, schools are built. Let's train up our children. Let's care for one another. Let's love for one another. Before the Christian church made those changes, you got hurt in battle. If you weren't able to march with the army, you got left behind. And if you lived, good. If you died, good. You were, you know, it didn't matter. Uh, you had a kid that you didn't want, you put it in the arms of Moloch or some other god, or you threw it in the river, or you 
or dumped it in the street. You know, it didn't matter. Uh, have bad things happened under the Christian world? Absolutely, because we are sinful people. But more good has happened under the Christian run. What are we seeing? We're calling it, and I, and I hate this term, but they're calling it postmodernism, where we're past all this and we're going, you know, and I, and I look at it and say, well, no, we're going back to pre-Christian. Everything that was done before Christianity is what we're doing. Kill the old people, kill the children. Uh, if it's not good for you, get rid of it. Don't care for anybody. Don't love anybody. Uh, if they're going to hurt, hurt you, then get rid of everything. That is what it was, it was before Christianity over, overshadowed the world. We had a 2,000-year window where Christianity really overshadowed the world. It's going away, which means that if we really get over it, we're going to have Jesus returning, and it's going back to everything about the Jews. This is what's going to happen. During the tribulation period, everything focuses on the Jews again. And God says, okay, here's my church. You know, I'm taking out the Gentile church, and now it's all about you Jews. You're going to have your temple. You're going to get your worship. You're going to get your way. Everything is about you. And now it's not about Christians. But here, Jeremiah is saying it's going to be about the Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to be called by God. They're going to be going to God and saying, hey, we've been lied to. We inherited lies. We've, we've had all these things. And then verse 7, shall the man make gods unto himself, and they are no gods? Shall we make idols? And this is the problem that we see even in, in the letters to, of Paul to the Corinthians. He goes, hey, you want to eat food offered to the idols? Be my guest. It's only a, it's only a hunk of wood and gold. It's nothing. Don't, it doesn't matter. It is only a lie. It doesn't matter to, if you eat that meat because it didn't go anywhere. It didn't mean anything. So, and we see this over and over where one of the problems that the Romans had and, and many of the other, every place that they've gone that have multiple gods is, you know, you've got to worship God. Which one are you talking about? The one and only God. What's wrong with you guys? There's lots of gods. You know, I've got them right over there. There's one there and one there and one there and one there and one there. No, those aren't gods. And so this is what they're saying. Will you make gods that aren't gods? And our world is recreating the gods. The same gods that have always been worshipped. And they know you're not using the same names, but really they are. You've got the god of lust and, and, and promiscuity. You've got the god of power. You've got the god of prosperity. You've got the god of what's good for me, you know, what, my good and my, my entertainment. And we're worshiping those same gods today. Now, we're not naming them Moloch and Astoroth and Baalim and all, you know, and all of that, but we're worshiping the same gods. And this is what he's saying. Shall they make gods that are no gods? And it says, therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know, I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they will know me by my name, the Lord. God says, I'm going to, you know, Jews, you've, you've rejected me. You're going to completely reject me. I'm going to put you, on, you know, put you on the shelf, and I'm going to go talk to the Gentiles. And he says, and by the way, they will know my name. They will know me by my name. And for years, the Christian church dominated the Western world and made inroads every single place. And because of the missionary work, we found churches everywhere. Very amazing that the first missionaries to Ethiopia were surprised to find a church. And I'm going, why? The Ethiopian went there. 
you know, he was a great missionary. And all through Africa, from Ethiopia, they had plants of Christian churches. The, the Egyptian, Coptic Christians, they made it to India, and they were surprised to find a church. Well, Thomas made it to, the, to India and started a Christian church there. We, people were surprised and all through Asia, and I don't, we don't know who made it there, but somebody made it to Asia with the gospel message. Over and over again, they found people that believed in God and had the Christian message because these missionaries went everywhere. Rome was a great time to be able to build the church because Rome had roads everywhere. They had Rome's roads in England even, you know, you had to get there by boat to get there, but you had roads that got you to the docks and got you into England. There were roads to England. There were roads from in Spain. There were roads in Northern Africa. There were roads all the way to, to the uh, uh, Himalayas and probably beyond because they had the trade routes. So there were roads everywhere and the disciples and the Christians used them. All right, we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we ask you to Give us a wonderful understanding of your word. Lord, you see everything we do. You hear everything we do. And Lord, you promised that you would reach out to the Gentiles, and you did. And we're thankful for that because we in this church are mostly Gentiles, if not all Gentiles. And we're thankful that you reached out to Gentiles. And we thank you for your love and your care. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.